0: Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Ryan Wolt, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. This is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals and entrepreneurship and coffee education. This is our second Coffee Smarter session this season. That's hard to say. With my personal coffee sensei, Chris O'Brien, he is the founder and head roaster at Coffee Cycle Roasting in Pacific Beach, California. Last week, we covered refractometers as a tool to brew a better cup of coffee. There was a lot of science in that episode, and afterward, my head hurt just a little bit. So this week, I wanted to move over to the roasting side of things, and ask Chris how a coffee roaster might develop the flavors in a coffee bean, those flavors that end up as notes on the side of the bag. I'm going to do that in a minute, but if you haven't listened to this week's feature interview with Carrie Elliott of Elliott Murray Coffee from Hillsboro, Oregon you should probably add that to your queue. Carrie is the first roaster from outside Southern California to be featured on this show, but I found out during the episode that she has SoCal roots. In a few weeks, I'm going to share an interview with Hollis Swan of Declination Roasting in Alaska, which is about as far west coast as one can go. And while he now lives in his hometown of Soldatna, he also has deep ties to SoCal Coffee, having worked building coffee roasters for Renegade Roasters out of San Marcos in San Diego County for years before returning home. The point that I'm getting at is that the coffee community is smaller and more connected than I even realized, which I think is pretty cool. So listen to the show with Carrie and get excited about that upcoming show with Hollis. You can listen to all of the Roast West Coast Coffee Smarter and Interview episodes on your favorite podcast platforms or just sign up for the newsletter on roastwestcoast.com and I'll send it to you every single week. Enough of all that talk, Chris is here, my coffee is full, and I'll assume that your coffee is full too, which means it is time to get coffee smarter on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. Hey Chris, Chris O'Brien, Coffee Cycle Roasting, welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast Coffee Smarter Session for the week. Thanks for being here, bud.
1: Oh always a treat ryan I'm happy to happy to spend some time with you and you know I always love chatting about coffee. Kind of hard to shut me up once you get me started too
0: that is true. I feel like whenever we start one of these shows, I have like twelve seconds of awkwardness at the beginning where I say hello to someone that I know very well and like is a guest <laughs> on this show but is also my friend in the world
1: yeah i I'd say we're, we're we're friends yeah I mean if that, that word yeah <laughs>
0: okay uh I'm just I'm gonna just ask kidding. you a question and put the pressure on you because now I'm feeling embarrassed and my face is all red <laughs> actually before we get started are you drinking coffee today
1: uh yeah I had uh had some coffee today I actually was a was a bit of a savage this morning i I, I dumped two coffees together in a uh, in a unplanned very poorly uh, um, measured blend I think I would picked two Ethiopias, but I had not relabeled the tins, and I had just been sort of filling them at random from what was left over, and <laughs> so yeah, I, I had a, I had coffee this morning, it was actually quite good, and uh, then I made myself some tea, I've been on a bit of a tea kick lately, we just got a new tea provider at my shop, and so I've been really enjoying sipping many, many different kinds of tea lately, so and it's nice, because I can kind of drink a lot more of it, and so I'll start with coffee, and then now I've got some nice, uh, nice oolong tea that I'm sipping on.
0: Well, it's nice to hear that even, like, coffee experts like you sometimes don't, like, make the perfect cup of coffee every single time for yourself. It was perfectly
1: roasted and extracted, all right? (laughs) It was perfectly roasted and extracted, so, you know, just back down there, buddy.
0: (laughs) I know you're living that coffee Instagram life, Chris. (laughs) Before I go too much further, you should shout out that uh, tea company. You've been talking about them for a bit. I haven't been able to try them yet, but I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, um Will Shine Tea, Will, W I L L S H I N E, Will Shine Tea down in Ocean Beach here in San Diego has uh taken over from our previous tea provider, Mad Monk Tea, which is uh you know, departed the uh, the available world as far as I as far as I know, but they still have some amazing, really special teas that are uh, usually the kind of more traditional Chinese styles and Taiwanese styles. They don't get too much into the the Indian teas, though. I think they do a little bit, Uh, but they're really cool also because they started doing some herbal blends and just sort of kind of broadening the horizons, but while still maintaining a lot of that quality. And I just love the, the tradition and age of like the the tea ceremonies and, and, and the passion behind it that these people have. So they really are excellent. I definitely recommend anyone to go do a tasting with Cynthia at Will Shine Tea down in Ocean Beach. It's, uh, it's a special, special experience.
0: Very cool. Well, we'll link to that for sure in the newsletter this week. Last week, uh, we talked about extracting flavor using a refractometer and, and what a refractometer does. And a lot of that was identifying levels of sugar and, and so on. I encourage anyone to go back and listen to that or check out that newsletter episode. This week, I wanna talk a little bit about flavor during the roasting process. Um, since that was more about identifying flavors and profiles and sugars during the brewing process. How do you identify and develop a flavor of a coffee bean during that roasting process? Uh, I've seen the roasting process in person. I've seen you roasting where you're taking beans out of a sack and you're putting them in a hopper and it's going into a machine and you've got a computer screen. How are you identifying which flavors are are most most kind of, I don't want to say infused, but that's that wrong word, are naturally occurring in those coffee beans. And then how do you as the roaster develop them as you're going along?
1: I know I've been roasting only for a couple of months relative to some some other more experienced roasters. I did try to take a pretty deep dive down the rabbit hole of the science of it when we were getting into it. And there's always further to go. So I'm certainly not the most most educated, but we have kind of developed our own understanding of and philosophy of how to approach that and I know you have a roasting expert that has done guest episodes on the show and I have a lot of respect for Siri Simran and she's just a a wonderful gal anyway so I I don't want to contradict anything she might have told you and I doubt that I will Uh, but I just want to give the full disclaimer on my uh my limitations before I get started on this one
0: but also you're in different situations where Siri works for Lofty Coffee which has multiple locations and she's working on a bigger scale and you're a new young roaster, and I'm going to ask her the same question. So I think it's really interesting to see how you guys will have different answers or different perspectives based on both your size and the equipment you're working on, which is different. I know Lofty yeah. uh, just expanded into a big loring machine, yeah. um, and you're working on a Diedrich. And so there's all kinds of little twists and turns that each place is going to have that's unique to you. You're, if I'm not mistaken, I think your machine is propane, which is another another variable as well. So I think it's sure. fair to say that, that we can have different answers, but also, I think, a lot of overlap.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that Siri has has read a lot of the same information I have and has sort of uh, seen a lot of the same things I have. But to, to get back to your question, uh, rather than just the disclaimer part, our roasting philosophy is very much modeled on something that I heard at another roaster I worked at, but is, is pretty simple. We try to roast the coffee to its peak of flavor and no further. You know, I've had some experiences of having the same green coffee roasted by different roasters that were all excellent. Um, The one that comes to mind is a directly sourced Kenyan coffee, Kenya coffee sourced um, by a partnership between four roasters and the two that really stood out to me was Bird Rock, where I was working at the time, and Clatch Coffee. Um, they both had this Kenya coffee called Kenya Makwa. And the taste profile on the two of them was was different. Similar, but different, because the green coffee was exactly the same. It would come over the same, it had been divided up equally. And much as I love Bird Rock's Roast, uh, especially at the time, um, but still... I thought Clatch's was better. And, you know, there's kind of this classic taste we get out of a lot of Kenya's that sort of verges between like cranberry and tomato, you know, it can be like a sweet cherry tomato is sort of, you know, what the, the ideal version is, you know, you kind of get this current red wine and cherry tomato thing. And in the Clatch one, rather than the Bird Rock one, we got instead this really big, beautiful kind of blood orange. And I really definitely liked the Clatch one better. And it was interesting to me because I really got to see, instead of just being roasty or not roasty, I got to see these kind of different tastes develop from the same bean. You know, when roasting coffee, as far as I've been able to determine, there's sort of two large approaches to it you can break coffee down coffee roasting the the process of coffee roasting um, from the minute you put it in the machine to the minute you take it out into sort of three stages and some of them are sort of slightly uh, poorly named or referred to or thought of like the first stage is the drying phase and that's poorly called because the coffee is actually drying and losing water weight throughout the entire roasting process. So to think of it or even to refer to it as, as mainly occurring during the first third is sort of doing yourself a disservice, but we have to call that first third something. So we're going to call it the drying phase. The second phase is usually referred to as the Maillard phase, uh, the caramelization phase. And so that's when the sugars that are naturally present in this seed of the coffee fruit, coffee beans, are binding to amino acids and proteins and caramelizing. And that doesn't actually make the coffee sweeter. Caramel is actually less sweet than the sugar that goes into making caramel. But it's a more complex and more satisfying flavor generally and a more nuanced flavor. And so the third phase is the development phase, which is basically sort of trying to cook the inside of the bean. And this is my understanding. Obviously, I want to keep throwing disclaimers in here. Cook the inside of the coffee bean as close to similarity to the way you've cooked the outside of the coffee bean as possible. It's never going to be possible to cook it exactly evenly all the way through it um, with just applying heat through convection, conduction, and radiance.
0: Just as a visual, I'm going to say this out loud because it's how I'm imagining it, but like if someone were cooking a steak, for example, and you have kind of rare medium cooked, Yeah, uh, where there's pink in the middle or red in the middle and there's kind of varying levels. You're working that heat is working its way through the bean from the outside in.
1: Right. And I I, I usually use steak as my example. Um, Just like with cooking a steak, you usually want to sear the outside more and cook the inside less. You kind of want to do the opposite with a coffee bean. You want to cook the inside as close to similarly to the outside as possible. You want it really evenly done and that's not really possible um, with the tools that we have, uh, but that's okay, because we still get great results, obviously. So if we have these three phases, we have the drying phase, the Maillard phase, and the development phase. Um, one of the two main approaches to coffee roasting involves sort of manipulating those phases. And usually it's you know extending the Maillard phase Both main approaches to coffee roasting that I know of both want to sort of lock in a a minimum on the development phase. You always want to be cooking your coffee bean evenly, and you always want to be drying out the coffee. So it really has to do with that manipulation of that Maillard phase. We want to extend it, Do we want to shorten it to develop different caramelization of sugars. And the other, you know, approach to coffee roasting that I generally follow is to really control the curve and slope of the rate of rise, which is, you know, and I know you said you in our last episode that you didn't do too much science in school. Uh, I don't know how much math you did, but um, the calculus.
0: I did much less.
1: (laughs) You know, the rate of rise sounds kind of, you know, complicated when I refer to it as the derivative of the bean curve temperature, but it's, it's pretty simple. It's basically how, quickly are the beans heating up and we use software to track that for us. And we're very lucky to be in the era that we're in, where we can have software that can do this sort of calculation in you know, near real time. But by controlling the slope of that rate of rise curve, ensuring it's, you know, smoothly declining over time and that we're sort of hitting our minimum development percentages. And so.
0: And, and just to interrupt, that's you're essentially saying that you are heating the beans up and you have a, th- there's essentially a thermometer type sub- uh, thing in there yep. that's tracking on the software. So you're watching the, the temperature of those beans go up and you're trying to do it as evenly as possible. And then at some point that starts coming down.
1: Right. Well, it's going to be coming down the whole, almost the whole time, basically the whole time you're roasting. So you can imagine that the inside of the roaster, you know, I love to use these analogies and stuff that help me understand and that I like to describe to people inside of the roaster you can think of as like boiling water. And if I throw an ice cube into that boiling water, it's going to melt real fast. So the bigger the temperature difference between two things, the quicker the temperature change is going to be between those two things. So if I have room temperature water and I throw an ice cube in there, it's not going to melt as fast. If I have really cold water and I put an ice cube in there, ice cube is going to take a really long time to melt. So when I put my room temperature coffee beans into the very hot inside of the roaster, they're gaining heat very quickly. And as the beans get hotter and hotter and browner and browner, they are now getting closer and closer to the temperature that is the inside of the coffee roaster. And so the closer those two temperatures get, the slower the beans are raising in temperature. So that is our rate of rise. How quickly the beans are getting hotter is decreasing over the course of our roast. They start off getting very hot very quickly. And as they get hotter, they stop increasing in temperature quite as quickly. Since we approach it with that sort of second philosophy where we're not really trying to manipulate the phases as much, we're really just trying to control that rate of rise and ensure that it is smoothly declining and doesn't have any big jumps or changes in it we can basically control the taste that we're trying to get out of the roasting by doing a lot of quality control on tasting what our end point looks like so if I have a smoothly declining ROR if I have my adequate you know or ideal development and the coffee is this color or this temperature or some combination of both And I try the coffee at a variety of those different color temperatures, then I can say that this is the one I like the best. And so for us, what we really do is we we dial in those things. We try a couple different ones um, of the the final result as far as light, dark kind of goes.
0: And what you're saying there is you are actually roasting them and then sampling them, tasting the end product.
1: Exactly. And then we say, if usually if it's too light a roast, we're looking for under-roasted tastes, underdeveloped tastes. Um, we're looking for tastes of grassiness, um, any kind of vegetal. Uh, sometimes peanutty can be something that we're looking to get rid of, depending on the origin. Um, and then on the other end of things, we're looking for roastiness. Do we taste any kind of hint of smoke or carbon? Um, and so for us, that's sort of the roast profile that we aim at, is to roast the coffee to its peak of flavor, and no further. So we roast it until we've roasted out all undesirable flavors and we stop roasting before we get any undesirable flavors. So, you know, in our last episode, when we were talking about the refractometer, we talked about extracting all the good stuff that we want and stopping before we extract any kind of bad stuff. Well, that same kind of philosophy can be used in the roasting where we're sort of roasting to get all the best, but none of the none of the worst. That being said, I gave an example earlier of this Kenya Makwa that two different excellent award-winning roasters had roasted. Neither of them were roasty, had any carbon or smoky taste to them at all, and neither of them were underdeveloped or under-roasted. So how did one have a different taste than the other? Chances are that it had a bit to do with that sort of phase manipulation and manipulating largely the Maillard phase. We actually had, you know, a really good success with one of our first coffees we roasted, which was also a Kenya coffee. And one of the things I really struggle with in appreciating Kenya coffees, even though they're one of my favorite origins is I don't like things that verge on that tomato flavor. I don't like that in, in coffee and it can be, you know, quote, good, but it's not something that I enjoy. So I'm always trying to find a good Kenya that doesn't have that. And so when I found a good Kenya, I wanted to make sure that I didn't roast it in a way that had that. We kind of learned some interesting things through a bit of a happy accident. Our roaster was having problems early on. It wasn't getting a high enough gas pressure from the propane that you mentioned. And so our roast times were longer than they really should have been. We had Our ideal, you know, rate of rise was, you know, nice and perfectly, you know, curved or whatever, or straight or whatever it was. We had our development percentage locked in. We tried different temperatures and we found the one that we really liked, temperatures and colors, and we found the one that we really liked, and it wasn't tomatoey at all. And the roast time was pretty long. And this is especially interesting to me because one of, you know, the authorities on coffee roasting is a guy named Scott Rayo, and he's, well, I won't say anything personally, because it's, uh, you know, but um, he definitely is very knowledgeable and um, very opinionated, and he likes to share coffee knowledge as a way to increase his, um, his consultancy business and his book sales. And so he shared this piece of coffee knowledge on his social media recently about roasting, where he said that the roast time – shouldn't really have much of an effect on the coffee flavor assuming that it's within you know a sort of uh sort of relative range and assuming that you get all the other things right and yet we had this wildly different experience with our kenya where when the roaster was broken it was roasting for too long and we loved the coffee and then we fixed the coffee roaster and we were able to roast this Kenya, just like you know some other sources had recommended we roast this Kenya, and it roasted very quickly. It took on this heat without scorching or or getting any kind of carbonized taste and it roasted fairly quickly. We hit all our other numbers, and it was tomatoey and we were like, "What the heck, man?" And we tried a couple different temperatures and colors you know and 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 it still had this tomatoey note to it, and we were like, "Gosh, darn it and so It's one of the um, few times when we kind of identified a certain taste that we liked or didn't like and were able to manipulate something while keeping everything in these good realms. And basically what we did was we extended the roast time by applying less heat early on. And we were able to change that tomato-y note into something much more like a black cherry, red wine kind of tasting note that was really enjoyable to me and to all the other people that can't stand the taste of tomato in their Kenya. And so it was awesome because we had this kind of happy accident that let us figure it out. But when I sort of dive into why did this happen and how was this a deliberate choice that we were able to make, it probably comes back to that first philosophy of coffee roasting, of phase manipulation. By having a longer roast time, I was able to actually spend more time in the Maillard phase while achieving the same goals of a smoothly declining ROR and an adequate development percentage. And so that extended my art, even though it was really just an extended roast time overall, actually eliminated this taste that we didn't like and created tastes that we did like. Um, but generally speaking, the overall roast philosophy of what kind of flavors do we want to get out of coffee and how do we get them specifically, we taste a coffee, we determine if the green coffee has any flaws that we don't think are that we think are are irrecoverable. Um we decide to buy that coffee because it's so minimally flawed or you know, not flawed at all, and because it has such good qualities. And then we roast it to the point where those good qualities are all we taste and bad qualities are not what we taste. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think so. Just because I'm curious. How many times are, I know you can't be specific because every coffee is going to be different, but different. But how much of time are you spending on this sampling testing process before you think you've dialed something in? Is there kind of a, you know, you're going to at least create this many data points before you go forward? Or is it possible that you could do it once and be like, no, this is it, I'm done now?
1: I read recently that creating a quality control protocol for your roastery can be one of the more difficult, challenging, standard operating procedures to create. And I definitely agree with that. And I think that the quality control aspect is just so important and any decent or successful roaster will tell you that. Even if it's you know a, a bigger chain with kind of what we would determine as, as lower quality coffee, that aspect of things is so important just from a consistency consistency standpoint alone, then something you really have to have dialed in as a system and as a as a as a procedure that you do regularly. And given that we're working with an organic product in sometimes not ideal conditions, you have to be able to adapt to change. And so I would never say that any of our coffees is at its final best level. Um, it could be that as the green Once the green hits three or four months old, it might be better than when I first got it. And I I don't think that's generally true, but maybe because I have gotten used to it more or because the roaster had a flake of carbon stuck in an intake valve and there's more gas coming through now, you just kind of never know. But for someone as small as we are, you know, we have some extra challenges in terms of infrastructure where... You know, one of the top recommendations for getting cons- consistency out of roasting is to have climate controlled green coffee storage. And I know one small roaster around, around our size locally took a bunch of um, money recently <laughs> and invested it into building a climate controlled green coffee storage facility um, inside their roasting, ro- inside their roastery. We don't have that luxury at the moment. So if the day is really cold, our green coffee starts at a different temperature than if the day is really hot, and that's going to have a really big impact on how the coffee roasts that day. You know, I want to create exactly the same coffee product every time with this, you know, excellent green that we've we've managed, green coffee that we've managed to find and source. But I take a bit of a different philosophy to it, given our limitations and, and given just my own limitations as a human and say, is there a range, just like when I do in the cafe, and say, "Okay, if I'm serving at 18 to 22 percent, I know it's probably good enough for most people. And it's going to be great." Is it perfect? Is it the best that it can be? Well, it might be. It might be, but I'm I have to accept that some days it's maybe going to be slightly less good or slightly better, and maybe I've never had the best cup of coffee out of that Kenya or that Colombia Gesha blend or that Guatemala that there can be. Maybe maybe there is a better way to do it. And so I have to always be willing to adapt and change. And I have to always be tasting my product. And you know that the Guatemala that we were serving for a long time is, is another great example of sort of deliberate changes where the coffee was a little bit more delicate than we were expecting when we first put it in the roaster. And so early te- early high temperatures tended to create this very, very slight scorching of the tips of the coffee bean known as dipping because the heat kind of transfers out to these edges. And so we almost never were able to reduce or eliminate this, this tipping in the first uh, couple of weeks that we were serving was coffee, but we roasted it well and we tasted it and we freaking loved this coffee. I mean, it was just awesome. And we just loved serving it. And so over time we kept trying to sort of tweak the roast profile little by little, always maintaining that it was good until we, you know, reduced or eliminated this tipping. And we were able to do it using a, a technique called the soak that I won't really go into too much, but that sort of works well on smaller roasters like ours. And we managed to get this coffee roasted without tipping. And all our other numbers were the same. All our our other results were the same. Same color on the digital analyzing device that we have. All this this different things. And yet, when we did a quality control taste, when we eliminated the tipping, the coffee didn't taste as good. It tasted slightly under-roasted and underdeveloped. So we realized we had to change our other profiles to compensate for this correction that we had already made. So it's really all about just continually re-evaluating and retasting and retesting, And that's the only way to get the best results. And that's the only way to ensure consistent good results is just to have a really good system of quality control in place and to always be open to the thought that this coffee could be better.
0: Well, I think that is a, a great place to end this episode. That was a lot of info. And I think it's really an awareness piece, both as a consumer and as someone who cares about coffee. And also for for you that we've said it on this show between you and I a bunch of times, this is an organic product that is constantly changing. And the variables, are, as you just mentioned, temperature, climate, age, there's all these different things that can affect your cup of coffee. So that consistency that is one very challenging to create, but also I, and this is just kind of a personal opinion. I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it's kind of interesting to say, I went to this coffee shop and I tried this coffee in the first week that it was roasted. And then I tried it again a month later and a month later, and I might be getting, they might be the same beans, but a different flavor experience for me because of all the different changes that have happened. And I guess I, I think I would look at that as something interesting and fun as opposed to a flaw.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think a really excellent, really, really experienced roaster, you know, with hundreds and even thousands of roasts under their belt, you know, can can arguably create a pretty close to ideal roast the first or second time on a on a batch of coffee. But there's just so many... Variables that are basically impossible to account for. You know, I once read that uh, you know all coffee is a blend. You know, you think you have this single origin thing. You think you have this this single unique homogenized thing, and it's never going to be that. Every cherry on each of these shrubs is different. Every shrub is slightly different, and at the farm level, it's you know pretty impressive how much they are able to produce consistency and it's hard for us to know exactly what happened there. I mean, I, I know of one farm that separates out different varieties and you know, one variety is this very distinct big bean variety. In a couple of years you buy the same coffee and you open up the bag of that big bean variety and they're all big beans and it's great. And then one year you open up a bag and you can see some smaller beans in there and you realize that two of these varieties have gotten mixed at some level And how do I know whether that's one bag or part of one bag or all the bags that I got that year? Um, How do I even know, you know, to check every, I can't check every single bean that goes in my roaster. You know, you just never know what's going to be actually going in there. Even if you have a good relationship with a really excellent producer, there's just, there's just something that could happen that you just don't know about and you have to be ready for that. And, you know i wish i was already at the point where i had thousands of roasts under my belt and i could say that the first or second roast of any coffee that i produce is going to be really excellent and close to the the best one but i'm happy to still be learning i'm i'm really enjoying the process and i love the idea of correlating taste to data okay i, I did this with the coffee this is how it tasted how did that change from the week before or the day before or the day before that? And then learning and growing along with the coffee that I'm producing.
0: Very cool. Chris, I'm going to marinate on all of that and come up with a question that will hopefully be as insightful uh, for you next week. That's my goal.
1: You're a treat to chat with, Ryan, and I'm mm-hmm. um, just very grateful for you. And um, you know, if your mom is listening, I just want her to know that I am nice to Ryan pretty often.
0: To recap, there are generally three phases to roasting a batch of coffee beans. Stage one is the drying stage, which is poorly named, because drying happens throughout the process. It is the first time the temperature of the beans is rising. It'll be the biggest spike in temperature change, when looking at the rate of rise, which is represented in the roasting software as a line graph. Rate of rise is the measurement of how quickly the beans are heating up. Those beans are heating up the entire time they are in the roaster, but they are not increasing in heat as quickly the further into the roast they get. So the chart will be a steep spike at first, and then a gradual decline as the temperature continues to rise, but does so at a slower pace. Stage 2 is the Maillard phase. Maillard is spelled like male lard, just in case you're looking it up. This is the caramelization phase, which doesn't necessarily mean that you are making the beans sweeter, but it is the period in which the roaster can most enhance the flavors found naturally in the coffee. At this point, the rate of rise has peaked, and the roaster is trying to increase the temperature of the coffee beans as smoothly and consistently as possible. The rate-of-rise line graph will look like a long bunny hill slope coming down from the peak. Stage 3 is the development phase, where the bean is cooking and the roaster is trying to get the inside of the bean cooked to match the outside, as evenly as possible, like the reverse of how a master griller might cook a steak. Chris mentioned tipping as an issue his roasting team was facing when dealing with some equipment issues, and the edges of the beans were cooking faster than the rest of the bean. From the context, it made sense, but I looked it up on the Sweet Maria's website anyway. So to confirm, per SweetMarias.com, tipping refers to the roast error that can be discerned by inspecting the roasted coffee where the ends of the elongated bean appear burnt. It goes on to say that the impacts can be easily tasted in a cup of coffee, often as burnt or smoke flavors, or a lack of overall sweetness. Tipping often happens as the result of an overheated roast environment, For example, the initial drum temperature is too high, or an overcharged roast drum, which means they added too much coffee to the drum, or possibly not enough air movement during the roasting process. To me, it seems like there are a lot of ways to mess up a batch of coffee beans. But like all things, there are varying degrees of messing things up. A coffee that is roasted only to 80 or 90% of its potential may still be a damn good cup of coffee. What's so unique about coffee roasting is that reaching the peak flavors a bean can offer depends on so many variables, because it is a continually changing organic product. How the beans are stored, the temperature they are stored at, the humidity that week, or the sunlight coming in through a window onto one corner of the bag of coffee can impact how those beans evolve. And that isn't even accounting for aging. Beans from the same bag that are roasted at different points in their lifespan may have some differing flavor characteristics. Trying to roast the perfect batch of coffee is an absolutely crazy endeavor. So I'm glad there are people like Chris who have devoted their careers to doing so, and I get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And he isn't the only one. This show's industry partners are some of the best of the best at offering up coffees that range from great for every morning drinking to holy shit this may be the best cup of coffee ever brewed ever. I always link to the Roast Industry Partners in the show's podcast notes, but if you can't find them where you are listening, you can also click into any article on roastwestcoast.com and they'll be there at the bottom. So, a deserved shout-out to Ignite Coffee Roasters, Café La Terre, Moster Coffee Company, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Leap Coffee, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Maria Coffee, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, First to Light Whiskey, and Cape Horn Coffee Importers. I'll be at Camp Coffee Company in a few weekends, COVID permitting. Mark your calendars for Saturday morning, February 19th from 9 to noon. I'll be there with stickers, drinking a great cup of coffee, and interviewing customers to be featured on a future episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I also want to thank everyone who has signed up for the paid subscription to this show. You're a huge reason why this show is getting made, and I can continue these efforts to share the stories found in the world of coffee. One last time, head to RoastWestCoast.com for those links, and to check out the other coffee content, including show updates, coffee news, and coffee education. You can also send me your coffee questions on Instagram, at RoastWestCoast. I'll ask our coffee experts as many as I can, Chris will be back next week, and I warn you now. I know that he gets a little rowdy when I ask him about the topic of Bulletproof Coffee. And if you want some more in-depth yet still accessible coffee education, Chris is hosting Coffee Smarter 101 classes covering chemistry, history, and economy, covering chemistry, history, and the economy of coffee, along with some flavor profile sampling. You can get tickets on CoffeeCycleRoasting.com, but don't wait till later because all of the classes so far have sold out. I'll leave you with this question that came up earlier and is going to sit on my brain for a bit. Is all coffee a blend? It's an interesting way to look at coffee, considering all the focus we put on single-origin products. Thank you for listening, everyone. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas now more than ever and be sure to drink good coffee.